an inspirational uh, vision of Christian apologetics. Um, I hope so, in as much as you uh, might be tempted to think that uh, only a philosopher such as myself could get really excited about defining something. And I am going to spend the session really giving a definition of apologetics. But um, definitions help us to understand uh, things. And uh, as one of my favourite writers from America, Peter Kreeft, writes, uh, to understand something is to stand under the authority of what's true to uh, govern what you believe about reality. And um, ideas uh, have consequences, and so um, I'm enthusiastic about the the ideas that are contained in in this. Um, It all sort of fell uh, into place for me a couple of years ago, once I I, coming back from uh, visiting uh, Gimla Collins School of Journalism in Norway, where I work part-time, and I fly out there once or twice a year to give some lectures and so on. And I've been thinking... Uh, about some what appeared to me disconnected uh, areas of thought. I'd been thinking about what is spirituality. I'd been writing some lessons for schools on rhetoric. Uh, I had done my MPhil research at the University of Norwich on uh, the transcendental values, as the scholastic philosophers called it, of truth, goodness and beauty. Uh, and um, I suddenly kind of had this aha moment where I realised that these things were all interconnected with one another and that actually this provided a really kind of useful uh, pattern or conceptual grid for thinking about what we're doing in Christian apologetics. So I'm not here working at the level of, say, the debate about when you're doing apologetics, should you, should you be an evidentialist or a presuppositionalist? Um, this is uh, working at a sort of different level, and I think this uh, concepts that I'm going to lay before you could be combined with a number of different sort of um, apologetic methodologies, as they, they're called. Um, this is more a sort of vision for definition of uh, apologetics. And uh, picking up on the latest trend at the cinema, I call it apologetics in 3D, because I end up with a definition that's got three clauses, each, each of which basically refers to three concepts. And so if you have the the notes in your folders, you'll see that by the end, uh, we end up with a nice uh, grid diagram of it all of of three by three boxes. So that's why it's apologetics in 3D. But you don't need to wear any dark glasses uh, for this session. It's almost as if I'm really here in front of you, isn't it? Uh, This is Kenneth uh, Boer um, introducing the Apologetics Study Bible. And just briefly introducing the concept of apologetics. And he says apologetics may be simply defined as the defence of the Christian faith. But then he goes on to say that the simplicity of this definition uh, masks the complexity of the problem of defining apologetics. It turns out that a diversity of approaches has been taken in defining the meaning, the scope and the purpose of apologetics. So I'm going to work through these uh, four parts and try and uh, draw them together uh, in a conclusion. And although I'm sort of looking at some sort of abstract definitions of things in a sense, by the end I'll be trying to draw them together in a sort of practical way and lead up to some practical advice. And no doubt yeah, you can ask some practical questions uh, about application as well. Um, I think it would probably be a good thing if I... Uh, pause at the end of each little section and we can just have questions on that topic because I'm introducing quite a few, it's quite a download of different concepts so I'll sort of pause after each section and we can have a little bit of 
questions of clarification and so on as we, as we go through. So let's start with uh, the term apologetics and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15, uh, which is sort of the, uh, the apologist's verse of the Bible, if any is, where Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And of course, the, the term that we're translating in English there as answer in the Greek of the New Testament is apologia. It literally means uh, to give a word back. And it's a, a term drawn from the law courts. If your lawyer was defending you against some accusation in the law courts, he would get up and give his defence speech on your behalf and it would be the, the apologia. And so Peter draws upon um, that uh, context, that, that, that meaning of the word there to say that we should be able to answer back in a reasonable and gentle, loving way to those who are asking genuine questions about the hope that we have in Christ. And apologetics, I think, is uh, part of spiritual warfare. If you mention the term spiritual warfare, it immediately brings to mind uh, very sort of uh, what you might call charismatic uh, phenomena, uh, things like a ministry of exorcism and so on. And I think, yes, you should include those kind of things under thinking about spiritual warfare. Uh, there's a whole lot of other things that go under this uh, broad concept as well, including uh, apologetics and being rational and arguing with people. This is uh, St. Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 5. And he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And strongholds here is a, a, a metaphor for ways of thinking about things that are opposed to the gospel way of thinking about things. We demolish arguments, says St. Paul, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So apologetics seems to be part of spiritual warfare. And it's obviously, I think, very closely related to uh, the concept of evangelism. And it seems to me that although you might be able to uh, distinguish some difference between apologetics and evangelism, being an apologist, being an evangelist, call to those ministries and so on, that in the pages of the New Testament, really, you see these two things going hand in hand with one another. Alistair McGrath, in not the most flattering photograph here, uh, says... Apologetics aims to secure consent. Evangelism aims to secure commitment. Um, commitment to what? To what people have consented to being the truth about Jesus. Um, philosophers will talk about the distinction between a belief that something is true, is the case, and belief in something or someone. Um, and the combination of a belief that Jesus is who he claims to be, who Christians think he is, combined with a, a, a faith in, a trust in Jesus, is a good definition of Christian faith. Uh, trusting in someone whom one already believes to be trustworthy. 
I've also been very inspired in thinking through this kind of whole area by the works of Francis Schaeffer, very influential 1970s, 80s Christian thinker and evangelist. And he says the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a debate, but that we, that the people within uh, whom we're in contact may become Christians and then live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life. Um, so there's a sort of holistic, whole person aspect to apologetics that Schaefer's drawing out there, and also drawing out the fact that it's not just something for the non-Christian, but it's actually part, in a sense, it's tied up with the discipleship of the Christian. And not just as something that they have to do for non-Christians, but there's something that's actually useful for themselves in helping them to live under the Lordship of Christ, believing in the truths of the Gospel and actually living those out. So here is the uh, definition of a policy, philosopher getting excited about a definition, uh, of apologetics that struck me one day in Christian Sand Airport. Uh, and it has three parts, each of which refers to three concepts, and we'll go through them a bit at a time, and I'll pause as we go through. So I think that a good, a useful way of thinking about apologetics is to say that apologetics is the art of persuasively advocating Christian spirituality across spiritualities as being objectively true and good and beautiful and doing that through the responsible use of rhetoric good rhetoric okay so we'll look at the concepts of spirituality of truth goodness and beauty and then of the three elements of classical uh, rhetorical theory i will draw upon both biblical and uh, classical sources in doing that um, the picture that I keep coming up on screen here is uh, uh, Raphael's painting of St. Paul preaching in Athens uh, in Acts chapter 17. And although we haven't got time to do that uh, today, I uh, elsewhere have been through Acts chapter 17, showing, I think, how the kind of conceptual grid that I end up with here in this definition of apologetics uh, really seems to, to um, overlay, to match with what St. Paul uh, does in Athens uh, in various different ways. James W. Sire, in his uh, famous and much uh, re-editioned book, The Universe Next Door, now I believe in its fifth edition, um, talks about the concept of a worldview. And there's been lots of thinking in the church and in philosophical and missiological circles about worldview and worldview evangelism. And indeed, Sire's definition of a worldview has kind of broadened as the book has gone through different editions. Um, he started with a definition of worldview that was very purely intellectual, something like a worldview is somebody's set of answers to the basic questions about reality. Uh, he's since broadened that to say, and I won't read the whole quote out, but he's saying that a worldview is not just a matter of intellectual answers to the big questions, but it's also a matter of a person's heart. It's a matter of, of commitment to a way of life, um, commitment to a, a sort of story or a view of uh, one's existence. 
Now, what I'm going to talk about in terms of a spirituality is kind of one step broader than that even. And I don't really mind what people uh, use the word worldview or spirituality to, to cover. They can, de- they can def- divide up the territory how they like, as it were. Um, but I'm going to use worldview in the, the more narrow, original, kind of purely intellectual sense... And I will also then mention the heart, and then I'm going to add something else to that as well. So thinking about a spirituality and looking for a general definition of spirituality that would uh, fit all comers, I reckon that a spirituality is basically a way of relating to reality. It's about relationships, relationship with yourself, other people, the world around you, whatever you think ultimate reality is like. But we do this through three related kind of uh, categories boxed here. Your worldview beliefs, worldview in the intellectual sense, your attitudes of your heart, and the actions that organically flow out of the coupling of your beliefs and your attitudes. So I would say everybody has a spirituality, There's Christian spirituality, there's Buddhist spirituality, there's atheist spirituality. Richard Dawkins believes that certain things are true about the world and about reality. He has certain attitudes and commitments towards what he believes reality to be like. And because of those beliefs and attitudes, it leads him to acting in a certain way. Um, Writing and publishing a book called The God Delusion, say. Um, A Christian who believes that there's a God of a certain character and has a positive uh, attitude and commitment towards relationship with that God will tend to organically do things like pray, go to church, try and uh, love one's neighbour and forgive people who sin against you and so on. So I think it's a general definition of spirituality and different spiritualities would simply plug different content into these three boxes. It's also quite useful to reshape the diagram a bit and put it into a a circle because spiritualities can act as sort of self-reinforcing feedback loops. Because you believe certain things, because of your attitudes... It leads you to acting in certain ways. You could divide this up as faith, belief that, plus belief in, leading to works. But because your your life is working, doing certain things, like, say, going along to Bible study and praying, well, that, of course, will tend to reinforce your attitudes and your beliefs, which will tend to re-ingrain in you the, the, uh, the habit of going along to Bible study every week, and so on. That's why it's very difficult to get people to change spiritualities. In evangelism, you're not simply asking people, could you um, sign up to a different set of statements about the nature of reality, please? Could you change your intellectual opinions? Although that's hard enough. What you're really wanting people to do is to change their entire view of themselves and their relationship to reality their entire attitudes about things, perhaps, to change their behaviour, sometimes in very radical ways. And so, obviously, that's going to be a kind of tough sell, as it were, in some senses, because of the self-reinforcing nature of a spirituality.
But of course, people do change spiritualities. And apologetics for the Christian plays a key role in us trying to help people to change their spirituality. Now, this did not really come from me. I cannot lay claim to this. Jesus seems to have got there first. Surprise, surprise. No, of course. Uh, In reply to the question about what is the greatest commandment, although it's worded in slightly different ways in the Synoptic Gospels and is obviously drawing on Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 as well, you could summarize it like this. Jesus thinks that true spirituality is to love God with all of your heart, your attitudes, with all of your mind, including, of course, your worldview, and with all of your strength, everything you do because of that. So you could diagram the the kind of inner structure of Christian spirituality as loving God with your faith and works, everything you are, and loving neighbour as yourself. It's just that the way into this form of life, this spirituality, according to Jesus, is Jesus himself. You know, the sayings, you know, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself and learn from me. So Jesus is the, the, the teacher the gate, the doorway, the entrance, the way in, the access point to a way of life founded upon a loving relationship between God and yourself, which leads you to loving yourself because God loves you and you love him. And if you love someone, you tend to love what they love. And because God loves other people, you, well, you have to love them as well, you know, much as that can be hard sometimes. And so there's this organic inner structure Um, to Christian spirituality accessed through Christ as the the gate, the access point to one's relationship with God. So let's go back with those concepts in mind to 1 Peter 3.15, the the apologia verse. Peter is obviously talking about actions here. He's, He's saying, give answers, give the reason, do this with gentleness and respect and so on why should we bother doing all this stuff because of our attitudes because of our hope our thankfulness for the hope that we have and how are we to do it with certain attitudes of the heart I'm told by the linguist that the word gentleness here is referring to the relationship with the audience whereas the word respect is referring to your relationship with God So saying, out of respect for God, whose ambassador you are being, treat those who ask questions of you with gentleness and rational answers, reasonable answers. Give a apologia back. Why is all this going on? Well, it's obviously founded in the fact that you believe that Christ really was who he said he was. You've prepared your answer. You've thought about this. You have answers. You have a reason for the hope that you have. And once you start looking at scripture with this kind of 
schema in mind, as it were, it starts jumping out at you all over the place. Just a few examples. Um, Acts 2.37, where the crowd's response in Jerusalem after the first uh, evangelistic speech at Pentecost from Peter. Their response is described, and it calls, falls into these categories. When the people heard this, the truth claims about Jesus and the resurrection, they were cut to the heart. They had a certain attitudinal response to what had gone on and asked Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do in response to this? So their beliefs that they had uh, now come to hold because of the testimony of the witnesses, combined with their attitudes, led to them wanting to know how to get right with God. Paul in Colossians 3, 15, 17, about the peace of Christ in your hearts, the word of Christ teaching, and whatever you do, do it in the name or the character of Christ. Um, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do stuff, present your requests to God, and he'll guard your hearts and your minds. So these categories keep reappearing. So let me pause there, having looked at those sections, for any uh, questions on what we've covered uh, so far. Um, it's fine if you don't have any, but if you do, it would be a good place to pause before I then pour another load of concepts on top of you, as it were. What's an attitude? What's an, an attitude? Um, okay, so say uh, a particular football team wins the cup. Okay, um, the the fan of that team is going to be really happy about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a positive uh, affection for the club and they enjoy them doing well. They have a positive attitude. They're committed mm-hmm. to that club and so on. fan of the, the team that lost the match is going to be very down and sad about that um, because their attitude is not oh, I wanted the other team to win, but I wanted my team to win. Mm-hmm. Um, so an attitude is a kind of orientation of our, our, our inner commitment or, or, or of our heart, uh, positively or negatively, towards something, some reality. So is it the same as an emotion? Um, it's not quite the same thing as an emotion, although those concepts do o- overlap. It's... Kind of because of the football fans' positive attitude towards their team that they support, when the team wins, because of their positive attitude, they have happy emotions. But since the emotions come about because of the attitude, you can see that the emotions and the attitude are not the same thing. Um, So certainly when you're talking about people's hearts, the, the emotions are involved there and and come to mind, Um, but they are distinguishable realities, and I'm not simply talking about emotions. Uh, I think that's a very good good point, um, because um, when I'm talking about the rhetoric, that'll be very important as well, actually. Good. Good question of clarification there. Hmm. Oh, Actually, more like a, a decision that you, or an assignment of things with values, or like. 
Yes, it, 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 the gentleman is asking, is an attitude to do with uh, decisions and with one's assignment of value to things? Uh, certainly, we, we tend to be positive in our attitudes towards things that we value. Um, we may be right or wrong in valuing them, I would say, and that'll come up a, a little bit later, but there's certainly a link here. These concepts are all sort of organically related. Our, our decision to value something, well, why? Because, you know, because we think it's valuable, or are we just deciding I'm going to sort of randomly van- value something? Um, so decisions, judgments about the value of things, um, are, are, but our attitudes can also be shaped by um, kind of irrational forces. So sort of, um, you know, one's positive attitude towards the nation in which one was brought up, say, sort of having a, a degree of nationalism um, that you might just pick up from the culture around you because everybody else around you behaves that way and values that. You end up valuing it, even though you've never really consciously thought about it or gone through a process of making a judgment that, yes, this country is really the one to support. So some people may you know, grow up in a family that supports Manchester United football team. And so, of course, they support Manchester United football team. Other people might become interested in football later on in life and think, well, I'm really interested in football, I like the game, but you know, to really get the most enjoyment out of it, I ought to find a team to support. Who am I going to support? And they might go through some sort of decision-making process about who they're going to assign their, their ultimate positive attitude towards. So there can be a, a range of factors uh, at play. Yeah. Switching. Okay. So let me say a little bit about the transcendental values. Um, it's a term taken from medieval scholastic philosophy, and it's it's not talking about, say, transcendental meditation, um, which obviously springs to mind if you're talking about spirituality. Um, rather, these are um, categories of value that transcend the categories that we divide the world up into, say, to study at university. They're values that apply uh, to everything. So everything that we think about in all the different subjects can be evaluated in terms of the concepts of truth or falsehood and or goodness or badness and or beauty or ugliness. These are not concepts that are restricted to the sciences or the arts or geography or sociology. Rather, they're concepts that, are, that undergird our thinking about everything. And that's why they call them transcendental values. Just a quick, interesting quote from British philosopher John Cottingham. Uh, because the whole issue about postmodernism and relativity of values and, and so on will often come up here. And it's interesting that Cottingham thinks, as he says here, that to everyone's surprise, the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism of truth and value is, is true. He's saying there's a bit of a turn away from the idea that uh, values and truth is just subjective. What's true for you isn't true for me, what one culture values isn't what another culture values, and that's all, all you can say about the matter. Rather that there's something of a move among philosophers to say, no, some things really are true. 
whether you believe it or not. Some things are really good, whether you like it or not. And interestingly, because I did a lot of my infill work on this, some things are beautiful, whether you like it or not, whether you think so or not. Um, that all of these things have a certain objectivity to them. Conning says, truth, beauty and goodness carry with them the sense of a requirement or a demand. The true is that which is worthy of belief. And this term worthy will keep coming up as the kind of link here. The truth that is that which is worthy of belief. The beautiful is that which is worthy of admiration. It's not simply the question... Does anyone admire it or not? Because you might think that they are wrong to admire it because of the kind of thing that it is. The question is not, is it sort of psychologically possible to admire it, but is it intrinsically admirable? When people admire the thing, are they in some sense right if they say that is an admirable thing, are they saying something that it, that is, in some sense, true? And the good is that which is worthy of choice. So these transcendental values, I quite like the way Cottingham phrases it here, and you get this, this central concept of worthiness, of, of value, intrinsic value, the kind of value that doesn't depend on us, it isn't something we invent, but rather something we discover about reality. Um, And I could go on at length about the relationships between truth and goodness and beauty and how if one of them is is, uh, objective, it makes sense to think that the others are as well. Um, But that might be a topic for an entirely different lecture. So I shall move on after that little brief discussion of the transcendental values and point out to you that... Uh, The categories that we're thinking about for spirituality, beliefs, attitudes, actions, will obviously match up to these interrelated concepts of the transcendental values. So beliefs are obviously things that one would want to judge by whether or not they're true. Actions are clearly things that can be judged by whether or not they're good or bad actions to take. And one's attitudes, when one values something, appreciates something, would seem to be the natural home of saying, well, this is something that should be judged by the category of beauty. So truth, beauty and goodness seem to very clearly relate to the different aspects of a spirituality. And if a spirituality is a holistic thing that's about the whole person, the whole of life, it kind of makes sense to see that it would relate to these transcendental values that are the values by which we judge and value or not everything that we meet in life. Now, this is, I think, a really key uh, passage from the Bible to meditate upon in in relation to these transcendental values, and that's Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 to 9. Paul, again, writing... In a very unpostmodern, and I would say not even modernist, but pre-modern uh, way about things that we should value and meditate upon. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, and we could note, he doesn't say whatever is true for you, <laughs> whatever rocks your boat, 
whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, on all of those terms seem to me to connotate goodness, rightness, nobleness, pure, purity. And then he says, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, beauty. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, there's that worthiness concept coming back again, linking them all together. Think about such things. So it seems to me that St. Paul would have heavily resonated with the transcendental values. And of course, the medieval scholastic philosophers being Christians, you know, where did they really get the, the groundwork of their thinking in this area? Well, from, from the Bible. So let's pause there just to see if there's any questions about the transcendental values and the objectivity of truth, goodness and beauty. Yes, sir? Isn't there anything like behind these kind of categories that Paul is, seems to be using in Philippians? Mm. Something that moves in his classical education? Or like, is there any trace before Paul that he might be driving mm. or, or pulling these things together with his concept of truth, of, like biblical truth and the godly truth? Sure. So the question here, just I've got to repeat stuff okay. for the tapes a bit, uh, is, uh, is Paul drawing on a classical philosophical tradition here, uh, or is this some, something that's unique, as it were, to the Jewish uh, New Testament tra- tradition that then philosophy then drew on in the later period, as I was saying? Um, yeah, I think there are certainly signs of this view that you could see within ancient Greek philosophy, particularly if you looked at people like Aristotle and Plato, um, you know, they were uh, keen on the objectivity of truth. Um, there were uh, the relativists and, and so on of, of the day, of the, uh, but within philosophy, some of the really big names, Plato and Aristotle, were keen on the objectivity of truth. Aristotle gave a great definition of truth when you, you translate it into English in words of one syllable. Uh, it's marvellous. It says, if, um, if you say of what is that it is, then one speaks the truth. If one says of what is that it is not, one does not speak the truth. Right? It can't get more plain and straightforward and obvious than Aristotle's definition of truth. And that's clearly an objective. Um, and Plato, when he's talking in his theory of forms about the form of the good, he has this idea of a transcendent objective goodness by which we 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 judge the 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 shifting unreliable forms of this material world but there's some sort of transcendent heavenly realm of the of eternal value out there Uh, and the later plato seems to identify that form of the good with his kind of divinity concept it's not quite the jewish concept of divinity but it was sort of close enough to inspire a lot of the early church fathers and the early early church writers in their trying attempts to integrate, okay, how do we kind of integrate this revelation that we've now got from God with the best thinking of our times? Um, So there's certainly echoes of this view that you can see in, in classical philosophy, yeah. Yeah. 
Greeks also had this concept of uh, Kalos Kagatos. Yes. Beautiful and good. The beautiful and good. Smashing, yes. Bring this in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so that, that, was, that was part of the normal way. Of yes. In the, our friend very usefully points out something I, I looked at in my Mayan Phil, and it ends up in the New Testament because it's the Greek language. They had a much more kind of subtle and dis- distinguished kind of language and us made, made more distinctions. And they had um, the term uh, agathos, which we would translate as good, but it kind of meant more um, fit for purpose, achieves what it's meant to do. So you would say the fruit from this tree is agathos. It's good fruit. By their fruit, you will know them. Um, but they also had the term kalos, which kind of meant the beautiful good. Um, it was our terms good and beauty were sort of both stuffed into the same concept uh, <coughs> in the Greek. And I, I think I'm right in saying when Jesus, for example, is recorded as saying things like, I am the good shepherd, the actual Greek term is kalos, I am the beautiful good shepherd. Um, and we lose some of that sense by having to translate it into our, our, our modern sort of English that's lost some of that complexity of the concept there. Yeah, so it, it even filters through, through, the Greek, through the Greek language, quite right. Okay, we've only got one more uh, section to the definition to look at before I try and draw the threads together and, and, and issue some more sort of practical points off this sort of launch pad of a vision of apologetics. And that is to talk about rhetoric, which is a term that has a bit of a bad name in modern culture. If you were to accuse uh, a speaker or uh, a tele-evangelist or a politician, uh, and these are the kind of people that this term would get applied to, as, as, and you would accuse them of saying, oh, they're just using rhetoric as a kind of term of, of they're manipulating people and so on. Uh, well, I would say that that, according to the, the classical and biblical discussion of rhetoric, you would say that's bad rhetoric, and we should, as Christians, be against bad rhetoric, but we also ought to recognise that there is such a thing as good, proper rhetoric, and that we should be pro-good rhetoric. Um, the transcendental values will, again, uh, relate to these three different categories of rhetoric that the ancients thought about, and this all stems from um, Aristotle. So Alistair McGrath again says that in the battle for hearts and minds of people, Christians need to know about rhetoric because Aristotle, he says, provides both a stimulus and a framework for more effective apologetics. And I uh, agree. This is a bust of Aristotle from the 4th century BC and his book on rhetoric which is the kind of classical fountainhead of thinking about rhetoric. Um, The Greek tradition was, of course, then uh, subsumed within Roman culture. And, for example, the most famous, probably, uh, Roman uh, teacher on oratory and rhetoric was a guy called Cicero. Cicero, in about 50 BC or so, was governor of the area of the world that won Saul of Tarsus came from. Um, before he then moved to have his uh, education in Jerusalem, but when Paul went from Tarsus, which was like the third university city of the ancient world, moved from there to Jerusalem to have his religious education, he studied at the, the school of Gamaliel, 
which was particularly famous for combining an education in Jewish Old Testament thought, but people at that school also, there were people studying classical pagan Greek thought. Um, So it's not at all implausible to think that Paul, within his cultural context, would have been someone who, uh, at least in the air, as it were, knew about these concepts of rhetoric, um, stemming from Aristotle through Cicero and so on. Aristotle defined rhetoric as the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits. Uh, sorry, I've put it manner <laughs> there. Uh, of which any particular matter admits. And it's an objective definition again. Talking about the objectivity of, of the transcendentals. It's an objective thing. He's saying you notice what is persuasive about something and then you do your best to help the audience to see and grasp that which is persuasive about the subject matter. You're just sort of acting as a, as a, a go-between between the audience and the intrinsic persuasiveness of one's subject matter. And rhetoric is the study of how best to achieve that match-up, that meeting of mind and reality, of heart and reality, of action and reality between audience and reality. So it is not, as a lot of modern advertising is, simply trying to get people to think or behave in a certain way for no good reason, as it were. It is not a matter of taking your car, which might actually be a bit of a rubbish car and a bit too expensive and use too much fuel and rust a bit too quickly to be any good, really, but advertising it by using, you know, exciting rock music and really well-filmed advert and draping a girl in a bikini over the bonnet. And that would be bad rhetoric. That is not a matter of, of observing the, what is persuasive about the nature of that car as an option on one's list of cars to buy and getting the audience to notice it. Rather, it's a matter of distracting the audience from the car through the music and the editing and the girl in the bikini. Okay? So there is a distinction to be made here between good and bad rhetoric. And this is the classic passage where... Aristotle mentions these three different kinds of rhetoric and I've put in some of our terms here. So he says, of the modes of persuasion, of the ways of persuading people furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. The first is called ethos, depends on the personal character of the speaker, that is their goodness. Think of the way in which we might speak about the, the, a company's ethos. What's the company ethos here? What's the company kind of way of going about stuff? Does it have integrity? Integrity of character is very important in convincing people, not coming across as the stereotypical used car salesman. The second, pathos, on putting the audience in a certain frame of of mind. I actually think we've been perhaps more accurate here to say frame of of heart, an attitude towards something. Pathos, it's kind of, again, devolved into the English word pathetic, which is not at all useful unless we think perhaps of, say, Tchaikovsky's 
the great Russian composer, his Pathétique Symphony. If you talk about the Pathétique Symphony to an English language user, they might very well think, oh, Pathetic Symphony? Oh, dear, I don't want to listen to that, you know. <laughs> well, of course, it means a symphony that's really moving, really engages, pulls at the heartstrings. Um, so again, emotion would be involved there, but it, it's, it's broader than that. It's Actually, when you react to that symphony in that way, you're, you're reacting rightly. And kind of, if you don't get it, that's a kind of bit of a, a, a sad thing. And it's a really good thing to give people a musical education that opens them up to noticing the intrinsic beauty of, of, of a wider range of things in life. Um, the third aspect of, of rhetoric is logos. Now, this, this term might strike a chord because we know about John's use of the term logos at the beginning of John's Gospel. It's a term from stoical Greek philosophy, actually, when they're kind of talking about the concept uh, of the rationality behind the universe, the kind of way in which Stephen Hawking might metaphorically talk about science allowing us to know the mind of God. But John took that concept and said yes there is a, a rationality a mind behind the universe but then of course he wants to say he's become incarnate in Christ and revealed himself to us in a person but the third the logos on the proof provided by the words of the speech itself obviously relating to truth so you have ethos pathos and logos relating to goodness beauty and truth and here it's Paul and Colossians 4 5 to 6 be pleasant, he says, when you're engaged in evangelism. Have good ethos. And hold their interest. Engage your audience. Don't just be sort of dry <coughs> and dull and academic um, like perhaps I'm being now. And finally, choose your words carefully. Give answers to anyone who asks questions. Paul was uh, singing off the same hymn sheet as Peter here, clearly. And although he doesn't use the terms, he's clearly using the concepts of a good way to go about evangelising is to have good ethos, good pathos, good logos. He even mentions the concept in the same order that Aristotle listed them in. I don't know whether um, that ordering, you know, and there's only a, a fairly small number of ways that you could list those concepts. Maybe it doesn't prove that St Paul knew about Aristotle's on rhetoric or whatever. Um, but it's certainly part of his sort of thought world, I think, and um, a biblical uh, example of the same concepts that Aristotle, the pagan philosopher, was talking about. Um, and again, if you relate that back to 1 Peter 3.15, they will again obviously relate and overlap. So... Any quick questions of clarification on rhetoric? Those Colossians 4 that we looked at. Let me go back just to check. Yes, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Yeah. Uh, I think I put most of the references on the, uh, on the sheets that you, you have in the folders, hopefully. So let's try and pull this together and say something a bit more practically orientated off the back of it. Because I've, I've myself, having kind of stumbled across this, aha, these things all link together, that perhaps is a really useful way of thinking about evangelism. I wonder if you took those categories and looked at the way 
St Paul's Day uh, did, uh, we have extra worksheets at the back if anyone hasn't got notes. The outline is available, which is, thank you very much. Um, I think you could go through uh, Paul's uh, mission in, in Acts and very clearly see him working out uh, these kind of categories. This framework would be a really good way of understanding what Paul was doing there. And if you find my podcast channel uh, through iTunes or Damaris Trust, you'll be able to track down a talk where I probably uh, apply this to that passage as well. So you can come back to my my definition now that I've unpacked those different categories for you. And you can summarise it very nicely in this diagram, which I think makes it a little bit more rememberable. You have your Christian spirituality. Your non-Christian friends have their non Christian spirituality of some form, but that means both of us have beliefs and attitudes and actions organically related to each other. We all have faith and works, as it were. But we judge these things and we want to encourage people to judge their spirituality against the transcendental objective values of truth and goodness and beauty. Now, of course, your non Christian friend may not believe that. Truth and goodness and beauty are objective transcendental values. There's a whole conversation and and, uh, apologetic and discussion to be had about that. But I think the the Christian needs to hold on to those and not abandon them in the discussion. um, Because Christianity uh, organically involves, as we've seen from looking at just that that verse from Paul, uh, a belief in the truth of the gospel, in the beauty of Christ, the 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 beautiful good shepherd, and so on. And we communicate the truth, beauty, and goodness of our Christian beliefs, attitudes, and actions through classical rhetoric, through logos, through pesos, through ethos. And keeping this framework in mind, I I think, is a good way to resist uh, any tendency to make uh, apologetics or persuasive evangelism, whatever you call it, something that's purely a kind of intellectually, uh, academically orientated exercise. I think the intellectual and the academic and the arguments are very important. I'm I'm a philosopher by training, of course I do, but Christianity is not simply a philosophical system or or a belief statement. It is a spirituality. We are trying to convince people to cast themselves upon Christ and to enter into Christian spirituality through Christ Uh, and so we want to communicate the whole holistic nature of the gospel to the whole person through all of their God-given faculties not just their mind but including their mind not just their heart their attitude their response to beauty through the arts and so on. I think a lot of interesting thinking is going on this week at the conference uh, about the use of art and so on in communicating the Christian worldview. And also through personal actions, through loving one's neighbour, through integrity of the ambassador of Christ and so on. And all of these together are elements of um, being a really good ambassador for Christ, being someone who is... Um, being a good apologist. I was talking to the Apologetics Network earlier about not simply being people who do apologetics, 
but being apologists, being ambassadors for Christ. It's, it's not a part-time job being an ambassador for Christ. Uh, and we're all called for that. Yes, we're all called in different ways. You are not all called to go and spend six years at university studying philosophy so that you can become a professional Christian philosopher or um, apologist uh, in that sort of specialised sense. But 1 Peter 3.15 is a verse that's directed towards the whole church, isn't it? Uh, he's not saying, let, you know, let me pull aside the, the evangelists among you and just say a word to them. Here's how to go about stuff. He's saying to everybody, you know, you will at least sometimes be in situations where people have objections or say, why are you a Christian? Or what about this? Or why is the church doing that? You're a Christian, aren't you? To be ready to have a reasonable response that Logos is there, but also he talks about your attitudes and doing it, the reasons you're doing it, how you do it, the fact that you should do it. Um, So it's a very holistic and organic and part of Christian spirituality, Christian discipleship. This should not be, if we understand it correctly, a grievous burden to us placed upon our shoulders, but rather a weighty joy in the sense that C.S. Lewis, say, talked about the, the weight of heaven, the weight of joy. It's not just an act of loving service to God and neighbour. I think that's at the root of apologetics, love. But it's also good for your own spiritual uh, maturity. And I just love this summarising passage from Alistair McGrath's recent book, Uh, The Passionate Intellect or Mere Theology, depending on which side of the Atlantic you get a copy from. It says, we cannot allow Christ to reign in our hearts if he does not also guide our thinking. The discipleship of the mind is just as important as any other part of the process by which we grow in our faith. We must see ourselves as standard bearers for the spiritual, ethical, imaginative and intellectual vitality of the Christian faith, working out why we believe that certain things are true and what difference they make to the way we live our lives. Above all, says McGrath, we must expand our vision of the Christian gospel. Apologetics involves enabling people to glimpse something of the glory and beauty of God. True apologetics engages not only the mind, but also the heart. And we impoverish the gospel if we neglect the impact it has on all of our God-given faculties. We are thus called upon to demonstrate and embody, to incarnate, if you like, the truth, beauty and goodness of faith. I think that's a wonderfully exciting, inspiring um, vision of uh, apologetics as a, a weighty joy and not uh, a grievous uh, burden or duty. Let me just finish with suggesting some practical steps for beginning to engage with this or perhaps beginning to uh, work through this kind of stuff in your church or, or small group or whatever. And all of these I suggest are something to think about that's individually and corporately. Christian spirituality is a corporate spirituality. Good place to start is to um, get people to listen to, the, to this talk again, or one of my uh, talks from my podcast channel on this. 
but to also pray and study into the relevant scriptures. And I've bracketed a whole bunch of scriptures there for you that are on the, the, the outline, but a lot of the passages that we've looked at uh, in this study, 1 Peter 3.15, Philippians 4, 6 to 9, uh, and so on. Colossians 4, 5 to 6. Encourage appropriate dialogue within the church about doubts and, quest- and questions concerning the Christian faith, concerning its truth, concerning its goodness, concerning its, its beauty, or lack thereof. Encourage open discussion of these things. If we, if we try and, and kind of... Um, summon up faith as something we summon up by an act of will if we suppress our doubts or questions then suppressed doubts and questions nibble away at our foundations and they become all the bigger and more powerful for not actually being dealt with and I think we have to um, kind of take that step of being real with other Christians about our own doubts and and struggles and worries being open about that it's okay as a christian to say well what about this or is there an answer to this question or i'm really struggling with with this passage uh, and and what it means or what it implies for my life or, or whatever are there answers that we can go and find. Well, we're certainly not going to find those answers if we don't go and look for them. And I always think of the, the verse that, that talks about carry one another's burdens. And there's an implication to that verse, isn't there? If we're commanded to carry one another's burdens, that does also put a responsibility on us to share our burdens with other Christians, to reveal when we're burdened by something when we're burdened by something intellectual just as much as when we're burdened by being ill or having a family crisis or something how can other christians fulfill their duty to help carry one another's burdens if we just try and keep secretive about them i think the church could do with being more upfront and open about these things and constructing uh, a safe place to raise and deal with these issues as long as, of course, you've got some resources there to help people work through their questions. Um, particularly young people. I was seeing a video the other day from uh, Frank Turek, who's an American apologist. And he was saying in the American context, young people at churches leave church, go away to college, university. The church is losing three out of four young people when they leave home. And I think a lot of that is because they don't, deal with the, the intellectual, with the reasons for believing that Christianity is true, can stand up to the object, objections that they will meet. You can't protect people from the objections forever. And if you sort of ignore them and just, just sort of live in the, the little holy huddles we describe it in England sometimes, when people do go out into the big bad world out there, as it were, um, then, if they've never had the opportunity in a safe, supportive environment to think through those questions, to get good reasons, to think about objections to the faith, then they are all the more easy prey uh, for the Richard Dawkinses of, of, of the world. Um, we really need to be equipping our young people in the church uh, with good reasons, just as much as we need to be equipping them with good um, practices uh, about prayer or uh, ingraining within them habits of, of fellowshipping with other Christians and so on. It's all important, um, but of course you always need to focus on the thing that's most lacking, and you kind of like spinning plates. The one that's about to fall off, you need to go over there and get it spinning again. 
So in that context, always this is a phrase from Francis Schaeffer, honest answers to honest questions. Of course, some questions that people will pose are just a smokescreen. They just want to, to put a distance between themselves and you. The kind of people whom you're halfway through answering the first question and they've already raised ten other questions that they're clearly not going to give you the time to actually deal with. They're not really asking you questions. It's just a smokescreen. But that's not always the case by any means at all. Uh, whether cr- someone is a Christian or a non-Christian, there are honest questions and they deserve honest answers. As Peter said, always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you for the reason for the hope that you have, those who are actually interested. Um, We can all, at whatever level is appropriate for us, learn without ceasing in this area. It's, of course, traditionally an area that learning would involve doing a lot of reading. But that's less and less the case. There's so much really good material out there now on the internet, on DVDs, on podcasts, things you could listen to in the car on the way to work, or whatever, on your weekly jog or whatever it might be. Um, Go to places like uh, William Lane Craig's Be Reasonable uh, website, uh, Reasonable Faith website, or uh, Be Thinking from UCCF. And there's lots of really good resources out there. And then... Probably leading up to, wisely put yourself, put your young people, put your church in a position to gently give an apology for the hope that you have to those who are interested in finding out why anybody would want to be a Christian. Um, and again, there's lots of resources to help you do that and stuff that's happening here at the, at the ELF, resources from organisations like Damaris Trust, um, I was listening to a really good talk this morning from David Robertson, author of the Dawkins Letters, talking about doing cafe meetings as a form of evangelism uh, and so on. So there's, there's lots of resources out there to help you. But I think um, that the, the sort of framework of vision of apologetics I've given uh, helps to capture a broader, more exciting, uh, more across-the-board, more holistic vision of apologetics that more people can feel they can contribute to. You know, some people will feel they can contribute primarily to the Logos bit. But you begin realising that that those, you know, Logos-focused apologists really need to collaborate with and work with the artists in the church. And we all really need one another to to help keep ourselves on track about integrity and loving our neighbour rather than simply beating their arguments and so on. Um, So... I know different, different members of the church have different gifts and will be at different areas of the chalk face on this, as it were, but we can all pull together in some way, shape or form in this task and we can all uh, learn to do uh, a little bit better than we are. So I hope that has encouraged you and inspired you. Uh, not, a, not a grievous burden, but a weighty joy. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have some time for questions. We do? Great. So I'll just put that summary up there and we'll take any final questions, but I'll I'll hang around if you want to talk one-on-one. Otherwise, thank you very much. I have a question. Uh, My biggest problem is with this uh, area of beauty. Mm. It's not a problem with what you said, but Mm. how do you show the beauty of the Christian faith, for example, in in the Alistair McGrath quote? Mm. Mm. I have ideas about how, how you can show the goodness or the truth. Yeah. But what about the beauty? 
Yeah. Um, so the question is about how do we go about showing the beauty of the Christian faith? Um, I think part of that's going to be through the use of, of the arts and, and media, through positive Christian engagement with media. There's, uh, you know, there's obviously value in being discerning about media, but I think there's far too much emphasis in the church about judging films by you know, how many swear words are there, how many breasts do you see in it, how many um, you know, decapitations might there be uh, in a war film or whatever, rather than also, at least also saying, but it also talks about some really deep spiritual themes. It raises really big questions about the, the point of life or about the nature of love or whatever it, it might be. Uh, and uh, although Christians, I agree, do need to be discerning about their own uh, film watching and, and so on, it's again that matter of it's better to kind of engage positively and with a, a critical mind than to try and sort of ignore or pretend that that sort of stuff doesn't exist. And better to be known for positively engaging with culture, making a positive contribution to people's thinking about the big issues that a lot of that thinking nowadays goes on in the cinema, in front of the TV, through music that's shaping people's worldviews and spirituality, um, than simply to be known as, oh, you know, that group of people that's always complaining and picketing outside the cinema. Um, so we can we can shift the, our method of engagement. We can do a little bit more of St. Paul going around Athens, looking carefully. I've carefully investigated your statuary and altars, and I came across this altar that said that, and that that's very interesting, isn't it? And you're very religious, I can see, and that raises this issue, which I can use as a launching point for getting to the gospel. Um, so he does criticise things, but he also does a firm thing, and he quotes in that. Uh, speech before the Areopagus Council, he quotes from pagan Greek writers two or three times. And the words of, you know, in him we live and move and have our being. That's a pagan saying that. Those words are now the words of scripture because Paul quoted them approvingly in his speech. Um, So there is... um, you know, there is uh, falsity and ugliness and, and evil to be found in other views and in the products of, of human, human culture because we're fallen, but also because we're made in the image of God. There is truth to be affirmed, goodness to be celebrated, beauty to be affirmed um, that can be used as bridging points for the gospel. Uh, I think the other big part of it has got to be about, about beauty through, seen through, through people, the beauty of character, the beauty of community. By this... They will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. That there's something about um, showing people a, a Christian community that's working in the way that a Christian community is meant to work, that powerfully draws people and, tra- and attracts people and gets them interested in, in Christ, who is, of course, the, the root and centre of that Christ-centred community. Here's what we have in common He's the, the linchpin of our common unity. And so common unity points back to, to Christ, um, the beautiful good shepherd. Yeah. Mm. I think I argue for um, beauty as objective category. Yeah. This is an excellent question, uh, philosophically. 
Um, how do we defend the objectivity of beauty as a category? Um, even within the church, I think, where the, the church has done a good job at standing against the stream of the world in its sort of postmodern relative forms when it comes to truth, when it comes to goodness. But I think even the church, in, in large part, has lost the vision of beauty as an objective quality of things. Uh, uh, we are very likely to, if you ask a Christian, well, you know, what is beauty, they might very well say, oh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, oh. Beauty is something that is... Subject. It's what's beautiful to you. Yeah. Um, whereas Christians wouldn't, on the whole, think of saying that about truth or about sin because they're so central to the gospel. But I think beauty is, is too. The way I would go about it is to think through, it comes back to definitions again, what do we mean by beauty... Well, there's a tradition of thinking about beauty that would basically say something is beautiful if when you appreciate it, aesthetically speaking, you admire its qualities, you are not doing a bad thing. You're doing a good thing. You, you are within your rights, morally speaking, to admire this thing, this vista, this person for their aesthetic qualities now if you build your what you mean by beauty on your definition of goodness if, you're, if your definition of goodness is objective well that makes your definition of beauty objective because be what you mean by beauty depends upon what you mean by good and of course, when you, you know, when you say that, that was a good thing to do, you're saying it's true to say that that was a good thing to do. So truth underlies what we, when we, what we talk about goodness and truth and goodness underlie what we're talking about when we talk about beauty. So beauty is kind of the widest value category, but they are all interrelated with each other. You know, it, not only can we talk about someone doing good things or, or being a good person, we can talk about their character as being a beautiful character. It resonates very much with the New Testament picture of putting on the character of Christ, being renewed from glory unto glory. And glory in the, in the Jewish is a term that has these connotations of, of beauty, of character. Um, um, to, uh, James might have a verse... Let them see your beautiful life. In the book of right. There may be a verse in James about seeing seeing your, your beautiful life. Or the way in which Moses is described when he'd been talking with God face to face as sort of glowing um, with without the radiance or um, Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when they see his his glory. Yeah, these these concepts carry these, these connotations of beauty and, uh, and so on. So the word beautiful will be used uh, as a descriptive term to the way the music was played, and yeah. as an objective term. Yes, so um, beauty could be, it's a very wide category, so it would be applied to all sorts of things. Um, we obviously access beauty through the senses uh, a lot, that's certainly part of it, um, but I would say you know, music can be objectively speaking beautiful 
Now, the fact that not everybody gets it, as it were, the fact that, you know, I don't particularly like a lot of opera, and maybe a lot of you don't particularly get the beauty of prog rock music, which I absolutely love. Um, But I would say... I'm not doing anything wrong in appreciating the beauty of prog rock, and you're not doing anything wrong in appreciating the beauty of opera. It's just I don't get it. But I recognise that there probably is something there to get, as it were. And maybe, you know, it would be a good thing, it's not obligatory upon me to do this, but it would nevertheless be a good thing for me to sit down with you and for you to take me through your opera collection and give, you know, help tune my ear in and tell me a bit about the background and maybe I would come to develop a greater appreciation of opera. And that's not simply in the sense of you've now sort of conditioned me to subjectively like opera, as if you know, an appreciation for opera was something you could be developed by giving me electric shock treatment every time I steered away from, from going to an opera. <laughs> you know, as a sort of behavioural response, but rather you've, you've now helped me to see that which is intrinsically admirable about opera or, or the music of particular opera writers or a particular opera and so on. So how did we decision that this, let's say, rock, because you love yeah. Uh, this rock concert was beautiful, that one was not. Yeah. Well, Justin, you could ask a similar question about morality. And I think, actually, the debates about our moral values, objective or subjective, are absolutely parallel to having a debate about is beauty objective or subjective. The same argumentative moves can be made with just the terminology substituted. So people about moral values might say things like, well, how can you say that moral values are objective when different societies have different values? They value different things. Mm -hmm. You say, well, that doesn't prove that there's no truth about what is valuable. At most, it proves that some societies have a wrong opinion about what is valuable. Mm -hmm. The fact that some people don't get prog rock music doesn't show that there's nothing intrinsically admirable about prog rock music as a genre it just means that some people don't get it (laughs) so exactly parallel moves can be made and and because parallel moves can be made I think it makes sense to think that if you think that goodness is objective you would think that any argument against that must, must have a mistake in it somewhere but those are going to be exactly the same arguments against the objectivity of beauty. It's just that the word good is going to be replaced with the word beautiful. And so you must think there's, there's some flaw in, in those kind of arguments, if the flaw is in terms of the, the logic of the, of the argument, at least. There was an uh, atheist a philosopher that I quoted in my MPhil work who uh, actually himself said, if you thought that goodness was objective, although I don't because I'm a subjectivist, But this atheist also said, if you thought that goodness was objective, surely it would make sense to think that beauty was objective too. Because of the way that our language about them, our thinking about these concepts, seem to interrelate with one another. They're they're actually a sort of organically related set of concepts. Um, So they kind of stand or fall together uh, in that sense. And although he was a subjective about values, he recognised that they stood or fell together and that was a sensible position to to take so I found that very interesting to find yeah Mm -hmm. 
And just as in, in, in morals, we make all sorts of distinctions. We say, okay, let's make... Uh, some things are obvious. You know, torturing small children for fun is wrong. That's obvious. That rainbows are beautiful. That's obvious. Okay. How do we allocate the health budget between the neonatal care unit and the heart coronary unit? That's a much harder moral decision to make, and people might disagree. And to help us work through that disagreement, we might start making distinctions like, well, let's consider the goodness of the end that's achieved. But what about the motives? Does motive count in morals as well? Okay, so we have to consider motives and consequences. And we might then end up saying, well, this motive was bad, but the consequence of his action was good, and so overall, the thing that happened was a good thing, although it had some badness in it and it could have been better. Well, equally, with, with beauty, you can say um, categories like, you know, is it uh, efficient? If you're talking about the beauty of a Rolls-Royce aero engine or a steam engine, the wonderful poetry and motion of a of well-crafted steam engine, um, you know, because of its efficiency, its elegance, its simplicity of design, what does it achieve as an end? Uh, moving uh, stuff that's heavy or moving people from one place to another, well, that's generally a good thing, etc., etc. Think about a, an atomic bomb, on the other hand. You might say it has great beauty of efficiency, it's really, really efficient at turning matter into energy. It's really clever. The, uh, the elegance of the maths and the, the scientific understanding that is embodied there is, has a certain beauty to it. But the end that it achieves of killing people en masse might be really bad. Okay? And so you might say, overall... That bomb is ugly, this engine is good, is beautiful, even though the engine does use up coal, which contributes to the greenhouse effect, which is bad. You know. So we're used to the fact that in moral judgments, some are clear, some are difficult, and we can make distinctions, and we can argue with one another. And the fact that we argue about it shows that we think there is a truth to be got at. You know, if I say, I prefer Pepsi-Cola to Coca-Cola, you don't all say to me, no, you don't. <laughs> but if I say, you know, I prefer giving money to water aid than to uh, the kennel for dogs, then some people might have a moral argument with me about that, you know? Uh, and to resolve that issue, we might have to get into a more complicated moral debate. But I think it's the same with beauty. You know, I think everybody thinks rainbows are beautiful, but not everybody's sure about prog rock. You know, <laughs> yes, sir. You can also divorce these concepts from each other by, by, uh, for example, doing a, a truthful presentation of evil, mm. which will not be beautiful, but in effect will be good if that's, we can draw attention. That's to right. Effect. Um, the current state of affairs in some areas. Yes. Very, very good point. So the gentleman makes the point that you could have a truthful presentation of the evils that are in the world. Uh, and so you're uh, portraying things that are evil, but the fact that you have faithfully, accurately portrayed them and not tried to cover up the truth about evil and so on is a good thing. Your portrayal is true. It's good that you're portraying it accurately rather than inaccurately, perhaps. And yet, 
it, it, so you, you do this through a work of art that portrays something, and yet the subject matter of the work of art, the image that might be there in front of you in this piece of war reportage photograph of the year, you know, we give awards for really great photography as both a work of art, artistry, and reportage of what's true, uh, or documentary filmmaking, or paintings that, that, that talk about the fallenness and lostness of man without God, might have really, in a sense, ugly images in them. Uh, think about Munch's The Scream, whatever, that, that person on the bridge hearing the screams from the madhouse across the river and the, the, the lurid colours and the sort of, the way in which it, it, it looks like it's going into a dream sequence and, and the, the paintings kind of captured that, sort of everything's going a bit wavy and sort of reality is kind of falling apart. But that, although there's a sense in which that image is, is ugly and talking about something ugly, it's nevertheless a great work of art because its portrayal um, is really effective, it's, it's, it's truthful, it says something about the human condition, it's done with great artistry in its technique, um, it achieves the end that the artist is trying to achieve, uh, and so on. So we, we break these things up into different categories that we can judge individually and then try and re-piece together to make some sort of overall judgment and people will have arguments about how you might rank these different categories of things, which is more important, the, the, the motive or the consequence. And we might come to different moral decisions if we disagree about that, and so on. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's parallel with, with beauty. It's just that we, because we've, in society, bought so much into the idea that beauty is just subjective and relative, we've kind of lost the, the awareness that we can do that just as we can with truth just as we can with with goodness mm. especially I'm being told my, my time is up but I'm, I'm happy to, to keep talking but I must not uh, detain everybody else otherwise uh, we'll get completely exhausted this week <laughs> evaluations we'd like you to fill out before you